All right, we need you guys to do me a favor. I want you to think about your favorite music album of all time. So think about your favorite music album of all time. If you're under the age of 20, music used to come in albums. <laughs> and, uh, and so artists would release whole sets of songs at the same time, and you would save up your $20, and you would, uh, you would go to the mall, and you'd get the album that you wanted, you know, somewhere 10-ish, 12-ish songs. And those songs were telling you a story. They were taking you on a journey. They had some sort of connection to each other, and they were very carefully collected to do things that the artist wanted them to do. Do you guys know the number one all-selling album in the U.S. of all time? Do you guys know this? 30, 30, oh, good guess. 38 million copies of the Eagles' greatest hits. Number two is Thriller. <laughs> Number two is Thriller, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you know, I, I bring this up because something similar is going to happen in the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 138. So this is when you want to grab a Bible if you brought it with you um, from the pew in front of you. If you're at home, pause, run and grab a Scripture because we're going to look at it together. But Psalm 138 begins a set of Psalms at the end of the book of Psalms that are all attributed to David. So if you paged between 138, Psalm 138, and page and Psalm 145, you would see that at the superscription, the part like right at the top of the psalm, that they're attributed to David. And so very clearly here at the end of the Psalms, the people, the people who put the book of Psalms together collected this set of songs so that they would go together like an album. There's a handful of other albums of David's music in the book of Psalms. So I think Psalm 3 through 41 and Psalm 51, I think, through 76, and 108 through 110, those are all different albums. So there's chunks of psalms that are attributed to King David. And we're going to read today the first track on the album that comes here at the end of, of the Psalter. And I, we're going to come back to why that matters, but I want you to remember this is part of a set of psalms. And the one we're going to read today becomes an introduction to that set, but it also becomes, uh, for us, a final exploration of how the Psalms reveal the spiritual disciplines. And so we've been working through the Psalms and saying, hey, how do, how do these Psalms point us to some disciplines that we can arrange our life around so that we can know God more and better? And so we're looking at the theme of this Psalm, which happens to be giving thanks to God. But we'll see that this Psalm actually presents a pretty varied, a pretty nuanced picture of giving thanks. It, it's a complex picture, especially when you put it in the context of the album that it comes in at the end of the book of Psalms. So let's dive in together. We're going to read the eight verses of Psalm 138. Here's what the scripture says. It says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. 
You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that your Holy Spirit would work now to minister as he sees fit in our hearts. And might we be granted open ears and open hearts that we might receive the ministry you wish to do for us this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're just going to dig into the psalm. It has three main sections. They're going to lay out pretty nicely for us, and we're going to see how they describe some of this complexity behind giving thanks. So we're going to see that giving thanks is a feeling. We're going to see that giving thanks is a response, and then we'll see that giving thanks is a choice. So giving thanks is a feeling, giving thanks is a response, and giving thanks as a choice. Let's jump right in to giving thanks as a feeling. Look back down with me at verses 1 through 3. Here's what they say. say, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, is the introduction to the psalm. Let's pause here. And, and let's just not skip past what we might be tempted to skip past. Because we want to notice that this psalm is addressed to God, but not just to God. You guys have heard me say this a million times. When we see the Lord's name spelled out in all capital letters, we're seeing there the personal name of God. We're seeing the word Yahweh, how God has chosen to reveal himself as his personal name. It's not a title. It's not Lord isn't a title there. It's Lord is a name. And so here is a, here's a person expressing their praise to God, to the person Yahweh. And it's, it's personal. It's as though we're, we're listening in on a conversation between this songwriter, the psalmist, and God. And you see throughout this little section, the, the second person pronoun that freaked you guys out, the word you, is there a lot, right? So he's addressing God. He's saying, God, um, here's what I'm doing. And he's having this conversation with the Lord. And we are listening in. And the first thing he says to God, he says, I'm giving you thanks, Yahweh. And it's not just I'm saying thank you. He's giving what kind of thanks? With his whole heart. With his whole heart. The songwriter begins here with an emotional declaration that God is worthy of the thanks that are going to shape his song. And that thanks has come from all that he is. If you've ever had a sibling, you know what it is to say thanks and not mean it. You also know what it is to say I'm sorry and not mean it. (laughs) You also know what it is to say, like, like, you know, um, please and not mean it, right? We all all know what it is to say a half-hearted thank you, right? That's not what's happening here. That there's something in the giving of thanks here that has triggered an emotional moment for the psalmist. That his whole self is caught up into saying thank you to God. His whole self is tied up in this effort to say thank you to Yahweh. You guys know the psalms presume that our emotions need to be involved when we relate to God. 
It's the whole book of the Psalms, right? So they're constantly saying things like, uh, I'm afraid, or I'm excited, or I'm overjoyed, or I'm, I'm worried, I'm, I'm sorrowful, I'm grieving, I'm lamenting, I'm, 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 in, like, I'm happy. Like all of these emotion words are tied up in the Psalm. There's some sort of invitation that's given to us, not just in the Psalms, but in the Scripture and from God that somehow how we feel, our affections, are supposed to be engaged when we talk to God. That somehow we're not just supposed to like do this rotely. It's not just fill in the blank prayers. It's just not like, oh, I'm supposed to give thanks. That somehow there's something going on here that the psalmist says, my whole self, I'm giving thanks to God out of this, this welling up of feeling. And where, where is it happening? What's the setting? Well, the setting is a public place of worship. Do you see what he says? He says, I bow down towards the holy temple. We shouldn't think of this as he's in private and he's like figuring out what direction on the map the temple is. Scholars believe that this psalm would have been sung in public worship in the precincts of the temple, in the temple courts. And so, you know, we, we were taught in the Old Testament that God made his presence there, he was with his people there in the Holy of Holies, which was in the holy place, which was in the temple building, and then they would gather for worship in the courts, and so they've turned themselves and bowed down, and so don't miss what's important to notice. This declaration of wholehearted thanksgiving comes in a communal setting. We can often mistake the truth that our faith is individual for the lie that our faith is private. You say it again. We can often mistake the truth that our faith is individual for the lie that our faith is private. There's a picture in this psalm that we express our emotional thanksgiving to God, that that comes, that that wells out of us when we're in a public place of worship, that somehow we can come into the gathered people of God and say, I'm so overjoyed with who God is. I want to say thank you to him with my whole heart, not just because everyone is singing the song about thanks, but because my whole self is engaged in worshiping God in this communal place. Well, what is he giving thanks for? Look back down at verse 2 at the end. He says, I give thanks to your name for your what? Your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This um, is a, a key phrase in the whole scripture, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. As a matter of fact, it comes from a very critical point in the history of Israel. Some of you guys remember we've talked about it before. Moses has gone up on the Mount of Sinai, and he's gone there to meet with God, and he's gone there to receive from God the covenant conditions, the things that God's going to say, hey, this is what it is for us to live together in relationship with me as your God and you as my people, and here's what this covenant is going to look like and how it's going to be played out. And Moses says, look, can I just see you? Like, you know, as, as it's coming down, God says, look, I'll, fine, I'll pass before you, I'll hide you. And we have these words in Exodus 34. The Lord, so Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love becomes the key definitional term of who God is, of who Yahweh is. It's used more than, that, that word steadfast love is more than 250 times in the Old Testament and 130 times in the Psalms alone. 
what, what's happening here is it's not a great word to translate into English. We don't really have great equivalents. And so we have this, we, we've settled on steadfast love. But it really is this picture of God's merciful relational aspect that reaches out to his people, that's felt in his affections, and it pours out in his actions so that he is always acting in accordance with his character and for the best of his people. It is his steadfast love, his settled commitment to others' interest. It is the love and the mercy that will win the day. It is who God is. It is his defining characteristic, steadfast love and faithfulness. And so if Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, if Bill Gates is super rich, if Neil Armstrong was the first person to walk on the moon, then Yahweh is Hesed. This is who he is, committed to love, never letting go of the love that he has for his people. And this is what the psalmist has come to give thanks for. This is the source of the emotion that's welling up in him because he says, look, why am I thanking God? Because God is who he says that he is. He's not giving thanks for what God has done yet. He's giving thanks for who God is. It's not just that God acts faithfully. It's that God is faithfulness. He is, he has been, and he will be committed to the relationship of love that he has with his people. We can give thanks to God this way. We can give thanks to God the way that the psalmist has presented it here. When was the last time that you thought on the love poured out for you at the cross and the resurrected Savior, and you felt that stirring of emotion in you? So God loves me. When's the last time you thought on the goodness that God has poured out in his word and revealing his character that you thought, wow, this God has made himself known, and I, I feel a little emotional about it? This is the picture that's presented here in giving thanks to God as a feeling. We should want to have our emotions kindled. This is how the psalm begins. This is the kind of thanks that wells up in us when we contemplate a loved one just for who they are. This is the kind of thanks that comes up in us when we appreciate people for who they are. This is the thanks that comes up when we think about God as being the one whose love is for us and towards us, who is faithfulness itself and can never act contrary to his character. That should make us feel something. God loves me. God loves you, and his love is so settled, and it's so committed. Nothing can threaten it. Well, if that's giving thanks as a feeling, we also have giving thanks as a response. Look back at the next handful of verses, verse 4. We're told, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for what? For they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Here is a description of universal, worldwide participation in the giving of thanks. Now the kings of the whole earth have been compelled to give their thanks alongside the singer, alongside the people of the temple, alongside God's people, Israel. Here the whole of humanity is invited into giving thanks to God. Why? Well, because he isn't silent. He has made himself known. He has made his words known. He has made his character known, his glory known. No one is guessing about God, and this is a theme that gets dragged out throughout Scripture, especially into the New Testament. So I'm thinking about passages like Romans 1, where we're told right, that God's invisible qualities, his eternal nature, his, his divine character have been made known plainly to everyone. 
Or Philippians 1, where we're told what? That one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or this picture in Revelation of the praises of all creation summed up in this declaration to God, right? Worthy, worthy as a lamb to receive glory and honor and power and thanks and blessing. Like, here is the picture that God is painting for us about the end of all things, that we would all be gathered up in giving thanks to God for making himself known and the work that he's done in Christ. God is not silent, and so we respond to him in thanksgiving. Notice also that that silence is not just for the power, or that, that re- revelation is not just for the powerful. That revelation is for the lowly. Psalmist says that he regards both, that he's aware of both the lowly and the proud, but that he regards, he has special He has a special attention to the lowly. Yahweh is not a respecter of human ways of power. He's not a respecter of human ways of influence or what humans think is right. We respond to him in thanks because he sees past those things. So we're reminded that God does not operate according to the world's measures of what's good and bad and right and wrong. God does not operate by our standards. God does not operate by our assumptions. God is close to the lowly, and the psalmist sees this as a reason to give thanks. Essentially, the psalmist is saying what? That we should all thank God, because he is always the one who's responsible for the good that we experience. We know what it is to give thanks this way as a response. This is when we send thank you cards, right? This is when we go out of our way to say thank you for the thing that you've done for me. This is this aspect of thanks that's being pointed or painted for us in this psalm. And just the act of giving thanks presumes three key things, that everyone's invited, all the kings of the earth, all the nations that they represent, just this aspect, that these three aspects of this that, that we have to assume are there. And one is that if we give thanks to God for something, we're saying that I've received something I didn't earn. When was the last time you wrote a thank you note for your paycheck? Right? We don't do that. I earned that money. It's mine. I, I, I've earned it. I did what it took to get the money, and so now it's, it's mine. I don't send a thank you note for that. But friends, listen. There are things in this world that we give thanks to God for. We're saying there are things that have come into our lives that we didn't earn. There was nothing in us We didn't do the things we had to do to earn it. But if we give thanks, we're also saying it's not something I discovered. We're also saying that good things have come into my life for which I respond with thanks. That good things have come in my life that weren't by accident. We're actually saying there's an intentionality behind the good things that happen. Behind God's grace in revealing himself. Somehow God is, is intentionally revealing himself to us. And what else does thanks presume? Well, thanks also presumes that if I didn't earn it, and I didn't stumble upon it, I also didn't deserve it. God is at work. I do nothing myself to deserve his goodness in my life. But God has poured out his goodness as he sees fit. And if we think we deserve God's favor or goodness, or that we're due something, then we're missing the point. So we have this invitation to give thanks as a response, because we all can be aware that we don't earn or discover 
or deserve the good things that God has given to us. But if we can give thanks as a feeling, and if we can give thanks as a response, we see that things get a little trickier in the last stanza because we can also give thanks as a choice. Look back down at verses 7 and 8. The psalmist says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Don't read past this. That the same psalmist who said, I'm giving thanks with my whole heart, that the same psalmist who said all of the kings of the earth, all of the people of the earth are going to respond to God in thanks, has also now said what? I walk in the midst of trouble. You know, walk is a biblical metaphor for a way of life. When the Bible uses the word walk, it's, it's often talking about not physically walking, into trouble. It's saying the manner of your life is such and such. What the psalmist is saying here, that his life is proceeding according to the ways of trouble. That somehow there's this ongoing sense that his whole life is defined by hardship and struggle And so the same voice that calls out wholeheartedly in worship, I'm thanking God because of who he is, and that same voice that says, come on, everyone, respond to God for his goodness, now also says what? His life is in danger. He needs supernatural intervention to preserve it. Says what else? That there's enemies who are set against him. Not that there's just this casual opposition or that somehow he has some obstacles he faced, but that there's intentional opposition to his well-being. What else? That he needs deliverance. And so now we have to ask ourselves, how does someone give thanks in those circumstances? How does someone give thanks when their life has become defined by trouble? When there's opposition out to get them? When somehow They they need supernatural intervention. Notice what's at work in these verses is the hand of God. It's three times you can circle it if you have your own Bible. We see that God stretches out his hand, that his right hand delivers, that God is going to do the work of his hands. This is a picture, another biblical metaphor of what? That God has the authority and the power to act in the world. The hand of God is needed in this life of trouble. And so the psalmist can reflect in this moment, not just on what God has done, that he is preserving his life, that he is stretching out his hand on his behalf, even though he's walking in trouble, he knows that somehow God is at work. But he also reflects, he also reflects on the idea that God will continue to do those things. And so he says in verse eight, the Lord will fulfill. So he has preserved, he is preserving, and he will continue to do what he has promised to do. This is what it means to have faith. The psalmist in this moment is reflecting on who God is and what God has done and what God has led him to in the circumstances of his life and he's looking forward and he's saying, I think, I, I think God can still be true to his steadfast love 
and faithfulness. This is the ultimate expression of confidence. You all know what confidence is, right? Confidence is like kind of the trust and the faith to, to, that something is going to happen the way that it, you intended to, or something is going to turn out the way that you expect, that everything is going to be okay. You know, we have pictures of confidence in our world. They're not super helpful. I was trying to think, hey, what, where do we use that word? Lots of times we use the word confidence in sporting events, right? Like when the game's on the line, maybe you're like Northminster's softball team, and the game is on the line and you're stepping up to the plate. Do you have the confidence that you're the guy who can take that swing, right, and get that run? Or maybe you're the quarterback and you're going to throw the ball and you have confidence, like, put the ball in my hands, coach, I can get it done, right? We, we, we tend to think about confidence that way, like this, this settled, like, understanding that I, I can do what I'm being asked to do. But the confidence that's pictured here is completely different. Somehow the psalmist has confidence not in himself, and not in the circumstances of his life, because he's going to say, look, I'm walking in trouble. He doesn't, he doesn't have any confidence in that. His confidence is a different picture. One time I took a group of students on a mission trip to Oklahoma City, and I know they've done it lots of places now, but, you know, 10 years ago, um, it was one of the first places they had turned old grain silos into climbing gyms. And, uh, and you could just climb all the way up the inside of these, you know, they're probably like, 12 different silos, and you could climb up them. So I watched as everyone's pulling on those harnesses, right, and like clipping into the, to the things, and we're testing the ropes, and like who's going to belay me, and who's holding on, and then you, you go up that wall. And in the moment that you're climbing up that wall, your confidence isn't necessarily in yourself. Your confidence is in what? It's in those knots that you tied, it's in the strength of that material that's holding on to you. As I'm climbing this wall, you think to yourself, my fingers may fail me. My feet may slip. My strength may give out. But I don't have to fear because something else is holding me fast. And so when I can't reach for the next foothold, when I don't know where to put my hand next, when I can't hold on to this wall any longer, our confidence comes from knowing what? That something, that someone else is holding me. And so the psalmist can choose to thank God in this last stanza. Not because her or his life is perfect, not because God's will and his hand had moved so that all the trouble is gone. But the psalmist can have confidence because of who God is. You know, this is what we celebrated today in, in the sacrament of baptism. This was the confidence that we have in looking at little Magdalene and saying that the promises of God to you are backed up by the character of God that's been demonstrated in the history of God at work and recorded in the trustworthy accounts of God and embodied by his people so that you will know that God is holding fast to you. We can give thanks to God in this way, too. With our feelings, yes. As a response, yes. But as a choice, yes. We can choose to evaluate our circumstances, 
in light of who God is and choose not to evaluate God in light of our troubling circumstances. This is the confidence of giving thanks as a choice. Not that everything will work out, but that there will be no hardship, there will be no enemies, there will be nothing in the way that can stop God's purposes from being, being thwarted. And so giving thanks then becomes a choice. And as we make that choice, giving thanks becomes an expression of hope. I told you we were going to return to this, this idea that this psalm is the beginning track in an album. And it is. It's the first track, and it has ties to the last track, Psalm 145. And they're both these psalms of praise and thanksgiving. They have all kinds of linguistic and word connections. Those, those songs are connected um, by the singer David or written in his name. But in between it are psalms of lament and sorrow and grief and questions. David says in Psalm 143, he's crushed my life to the ground. Answer me quickly, Lord, my spirit fails. In Psalm 142, he says, attend to my cry, I'm brought very low. In Psalm 140, he says, give ear to the voice of my pleas, O Lord. So this album that starts with this song of thanksgiving moves into songs of confusion and desperation. It ends confident in thanksgiving and praise, but tied up with that is the complexity of saying, I walk in the midst of trouble. And the people of exile sang these songs. It's, these, these psalms were probably gathered at the time of the return from the Babylonian exile. And so these were people coming back after 70 years of being away from their home, after seeing everything destroyed, after saying, God, you didn't deliver us. And we were led away to, to be captives. Then the people coming out of exile put this album together. And they said what? They said, though we've lost everything, we have not lost the hope that the God of David's thanks is still our God too. That the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness is still who he claims to be. The psalm starts and ends with an overwhelming kind of feeling of thankfulness. It really ends with this expression, starts with that thankfulness, it ends with an expression of confidence, but the very final words are a plea. Did you notice? The very final words. Do not forsake the work of your hands. There's a contradiction here. The psalmist has declared his faith in God to deliver him, and yet here he asks, God, don't give up. I know you can. I know you won't let go of me, but please don't. Some, some translations uh, have this as, don't abandon me, you made me. Eugene Peterson's translation, the message says this, of, of the end of the psalm. Finish what you started in me, God. Your love is eternal. Don't quit on me now. Because the word here, forsake, actually has its root in the idea of a clenched fist that releases its grip. That's the forsake word. 
And so the picture here becomes the psalmist saying, God, you've been holding tightly to me. Don't let go. Don't release your grip. The psalmist is saying, don't loosen your tie to me, Lord. Don't let me go. I put all my confidence in you that you will hold me fast. Though though my strength falters, you will be good. And I have to imagine there are many of us in this very room today who would make the same plea to the Lord. Don't loosen your grip on me. So friend, let me remind you, God is holding tightly to you. Your thanksgiving, it may not come from a feeling. And your thanksgiving may not come as a response. But your thanksgiving can come as a choice. And we can choose to say thank you to God that we walk in a life of trouble. This is what the Christian life comes down to. The one holding on to us is the one that we cling to. When all evidence to the contrary is there, when we walk in trouble, when people are out to get us, when our very life is in the balance, we can choose to trust God and to thank him in advance that his purposes, not our purposes, that his purposes, not the powerful's, that his purposes, not the world's, that his purposes, not our own, that his purposes will come to pass. We are the work of his hands. Friend, he is clinging tightly to you. We don't have to look any further than the cross to see a picture of this. After all, the psalms are the songs Jesus sang. This is the album he listened to. Right? This is his disc collection. And he knew what it was to see everything around him falling apart. He knew what it was to feel everyone was out to get him. He knew what it was to suffer and be distant and to still call out to his father and say, into your what? Hands. I commit my spirit. Jesus is a picture of that confidence. And he can trust the work of God even as he suffers in our place because he still believes that the end of the story has not been told. And so we follow the one who clings tightly to us. And we do our best to hold tightly to him. And we say with David at the end of the psalm, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, my guess is that many of us need a reminder that our confidence does not come from our own strength of faith our own sense that we can climb the wall in front of us, our own sense that we can walk the road of trouble that you've placed before our feet. But that we can choose to give thanks 
because you are who you say you are. And your steadfast love and faithfulness are upon us. And so God, we ask like the psalmist, do not forsake the work of your hand. Amen.